Welcome to the Field Trip Podcast. I'm Kara Platoni. And I'm Eric Simmons. And I'm Megan Molteni. Wait a minute. Where did you come from? Oh, I just got back from Aspen, Colorado. No, I mean, like, what are you doing here? This is awkward. You didn't tell him? Casey, did you tell him? I forgot. Tell me what? Well, you know how this summer you were writing a book? Yeah, I was. And you know how you also just had a baby? Yeah, you're kidding. Well, so Casey and I thought that while our team took the summer off, it would be great if we had some of our friends tell us about the field trips they were taking. They're going to be filing reports to us about their science adventures from all over the world. Kind of like a postcards from summer camp thing. Summer camp. Yeah, exactly. Can we go trout fishing in the lake? It's getting a little cold. Are there s'mores? Yes. Okay, I'm on board. Welcome to the Field Trip Podcast. I'm Kara Plotoni. I'm Eric Simmons. And I'm Megan Molteni. And in this show, we are taking you through the aftermath of a forest fire. We'll learn all about what the remains of a fire can tell you about the future of the forest. And how one fire can change the ecology of an entire region. So put on your fireman's pants. Hey, where are my fireman's pants? And let's go on a field trip. Uh, So Megan, before we get to the fire... Tell us a little bit about what you were doing in Colorado this summer. Uh, I was working with Aspen Public Radio, and the Colorado wildfires were the big news story of the summer. They burned almost 250,000 acres in all. Most of the fires took close to a month to contain, and that was with firefighters from all over the country working around the clock to get them under control. But wildfires aren't all bad. In a longer-term sense, Colorado actually needs them. They're a normal part of the ecology of the American West. Uh, So maybe we can start here. What does a wildfire do for the environment? Well, lots of things, actually. For one thing, a lot of plants need the intense heat for their seeds to sprout. Fires also enrich the soil by releasing nutrients stored in the dry grasses and shrubs. How do we actually know this? It turns out there is a whole team of scientists who work together to learn about the effect the fire has had on the environment. Well, why would they want to do that? Because fires totally change the landscape. Without trees and shrubs, a lot of environmental processes can't work the way they used to. Things like the nitrogen cycle and the water cycle get all messed up. And figuring out how bad the burn is helps scientists make predictions about future problems like flooding and erosion. I found a few of these scientists and asked them to take me around. So I am Dana Butler. I'm the uh, BEAR co-team leader. And I'm also the uh, Pike National Forest hydrologist. Dana leads the Waldo Canyon BEAR, or Burned Area Emergency Response Team, They're a group of scientists that's been put together to evaluate the conditions on the ground after the most destructive fire in Colorado history. To get up to the action, we hop in his U.S. Forest Service high clearance vehicle, basically an SUV with extra large wheels, and we take Highway 24 into the outer suburbs. Well, right above us is Cedar Heights subdivision. That was one of the first areas to be evacuated. Fortunately, the fire did not go through that neighborhood. But that's, uh, We're driving in the middle of a caravan, scientists from the bear team and a forest service fire engine. And so right beyond this balanced rock is actually a closure. Closure, as in U.S. forest lands that have been closed to the public because of the fire. To get to them, we have to go through a barricade. Uh, indicate the threats. Okay, right now we need to get into our personal protective equipment and our Nomex uh, to go behind this closure. While our firefighter escorts move the barricade, we put on bright yellow shirts made out of fire-resistant material. Then we keep driving, snaking up the mountain, until we reach a spot where the fire burned right up to the road. Wait a minute. Did you say fire-resistant shirts? I did, yeah. They were these canary yellow work shirts that kind of felt like wearing a canvas tent. So why do you still need protective gear after fire's out? Well, it turns out the forest after a fire is still a pretty dangerous place to be. 
the reason why it's closed is we have hazards like burnt trees that can fall on folks. There is still smoke. There is still smoldering, um, uh, I guess, stumps and root holes, that sort of thing. So um, this fire, although it's uh, contained, what that really means is we have a pretty solid line around the perimeter of the fire, but within it, oh, there could be, um, you know, definitely some trees continuing to burn. So for how long do you think people will still continue to be out here, you know, until it's finally totally, completely extinguished? Well, for it to be 100% controlled, that means that, you know, just like with your campfire, anything else, you could put your hand any place out here within the burned area and it wouldn't be hot. Uh, there is a chance that we'll be waiting until the first snow flies. It could be November, October, before we really call it, um, you know, 100% controlled. So again, we've got this containment boundary, but within there, we recognize that there's still some hot spots um, that can skunk around, smold around for really several months. So we'll put on a hard hat and Certainly for you, we can walk around on this road here, but uh, we won't leave. So we're standing at the top of the Camp Creek watershed on a burned out ridge where the wind blows hot dry dust around our ankles. There are no leaves or needles rustling in the breeze. There's just breeze blowing across the hillsides covered with blackened trunks, sticking out like needles in a pincushion. Well, this area got burned over pretty intensely. As you can see around you, it's like a moonscape. Just a bunch of skeletal trees left. This is Brad Rust. Well, I'm a forest soil scientist for the Shastrini National Forest. The bear team's number one concern after a big fire is figuring out how the landscape will respond to rainfall now that it's been burned to a crisp. This is called a watershed response. Brad is standing on a steep slope just off the road to examine the soil. So how much can you tell from just looking at the soil versus actually going down under it? Well, you can sort of see that, yeah, I got burned out really hot. Most people think, oh yeah, it's just been nuked. But for a watershed response, when we do erosion response, we really have to take a look at what's in the ground and to see how badly it burned into the soil. Because if it didn't burn in the soil too bad, there won't be as many mobilized sediments. Okay, so just so we're clear, by mobilized sediments, he's not referring to the name of our new rock band. He's talking about erosion. <laughs> right. He means the bits of soil and rocks that come loose and run downhill during a rainstorm. All that dirt and ash has to go somewhere. And in the Waldo Canyon watershed, that means down, all the way into the creeks that supply drinking water to Colorado Springs. To figure out if this area is going to have a lot of erosion, Brad needs to really get below the surface. He kneels down and picks up a handful of dusty soil. What I do is I, I dig open the soil. I take a look at the structure and see how many roots that are left and see how deep the soil's burned down. And then I see if there's any sort of water repellent layer. Because when you have brush and other kinds of vegetation that burns, a lot of those volatile gases will push down in the soil and then will condense and they'll leave a kind of a waxy surface. It's, it's a water repellent layer. So the water comes down, hits that, and sheds right off, taking the topsoil with it. So a water repellent layer means that the soil's really badly burned. Right. So the first thing I do is I dig open the soil. 
take a look and see how much the structure has been destroyed by the heat penetrating into the soil. So I'll look at the roots are still intact, if their structure's still good, and if there's still like needles and duff on the surface. This is a loam. So it won't penetrate as deeply the fire effects. There shouldn't be real deep hydrophobicity or water repellency in this soil, but that's what I'm gonna do next is check that. So what I do, I dig down a couple different layers worth. I check it at like one inch, I'll check it at two inch, and where the water beads up in a nice round ball is where it's water repellent. And then I'll dig down a little bit deeper and see how deep that water repellency is and measure that depth. And then we can equate the watershed response to that saying, yeah, looks like we got a strong water repellent layer. Looks like we're gonna have a lot of erosion. So in this case, this beads up very nicely. That's, that's not a good thing though, right? No. This is down about three inches and it has a definite water repellency. If it sits more than, you know, 40 seconds, it's high water repellency. Whatever he just said sounded really complicated. Okay, so basically, if after 40 seconds the ground still can't absorb the water, that soil is classified as high burn severity, meaning it is highly water repellent. It's like if you had a sponge, but it wouldn't soak anything up. It's bad. And preliminary results show that about 20% of the Waldo Canyon burn area is considered high burn severity. So what would happen to a raindrop falling on these slopes now that the fire has drastically changed the environment? Dana Butler, the hydrologist, he's still standing there, says it's like imagining the entire watershed was just paved over with asphalt. And the water, when it hits here, is going to move really quickly, just like across a parking lot, and it's going to move down into that green area. Fortunately, we do have uh, a length of green in between uh, us and the community and some of the, what we call values at risk. It could be a road, it could be a community, it could be uh, just about anything. And what we don't want to do is uh, have people have that false sense of security when they're hiking through these uh, green areas. But for a raindrop that lands here in the top of the watershed, it's going to move rapidly. And if there's a lot of raindrops, it doesn't matter if we have that green there. It's still going to show up as a higher flood down in town. To show me what he's talking about, Dana takes me out of the burned area and back into town to Fountain Creek. Right now, you know, you say like it looks clear, there's like small pebbles, but what's the kind of stuff that we're going to see washing down the slopes? Well, you can see already uh, over on the sides here where the water's moving slower, that is ash that has been deposited. You can see down here by the pools, all that dark color is all ash that's already moved down through the system from the burned area. So we can probably see, there'll be, will there be more of that in the coming months? In the coming months, I would expect to see first the ash, which is the finest stuff, comes through. And depending on the types of storm events we have, we'll see rocks, uh, perhaps boulders. Uh, as these trees get blown over, we're expecting them to be transported downstream. What does it do to the water quality? Well, in these systems here, uh, as far as drinking water quality, our filtration systems are all set for handling this type of um, event. But for the fisheries and all, 
Yeah, we're quite concerned. Uh, we think that uh, if we get filling in of pools, there won't be as much cover for the fish to uh, find refuge in. So uh, we're concerned about losing pool habitat. As far as the chemistry, there is a change in the water chemistry. Uh, we don't expect it to be significant enough to affect the fish or riparian dependent species. Basically, they told you that one really bad fire can affect the future of the entire water system? Yeah, and what's really interesting is that fires today tend to be much worse than they were 100 years ago. What used to happen in the days of settlers and Native Americans is fires would naturally occur every few years and things would burn and then go back to normal. Once lots of people started moving in and building houses, they wanted to protect their livelihood, so they did things to prevent fires from happening. But without a normal fire cycle, lots of grass and brush builds up over time, creating a huge fuel load. So the irony is, these attempts to contain smaller wildfires in the past have only postponed the return of even bigger and more destructive ones. And the worst may be yet to come. Thanks for joining us for a special Summer Dispatches edition of the Field Trip Podcast. We'll be back next week with a new one from somewhere else on the planet. Our behind-the-scenes team includes producer Casey Miner, composer Andrew Sutherland, and illustrator Mike Smith. Special thanks to this week's reporter, Megan Molteni. You got it, guys. And as always, thanks to Jim Richards, Jeremy Rue, the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism, and science nerds everywhere. If you'd like to hear past episodes, you can download our podcasts for free on iTunes or from our website, fieldtrippodcast.com. Keep an eye on our Twitter feed for more updates. We're at Field Trip. Log. I'm Eric Simmons. I'm Kara Platoni. And we will see you next time on the Field Trip Podcast.